0: This evening's talk is titled, Through the Looking Glass, the Reality of No-Self. And the looking glass being a reflective mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years and on through my adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller, myself looking at myself in the mirror seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror endlessly I would often uh, be amazed uh, and kind of fascinated and intrigued at times uh, with this dream and if I thought about it very much I would get quite perplexed in relationship to it But mostly I was just really interested. Interested enough that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. And this dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian and right then I had this very distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home and the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics or the three truths of all phenomena. The first being Anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, of all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. With the second universal characteristic of all things, all phenomena, being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure, sustaining in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects, and in the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind, none of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure, of happiness but rather the dukkha of the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking, the dukkha of the rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things, all phenomena being of the nature to change and to pass away thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing sustaining satisfaction this evening we'll begin to explore the not self nature of it all although we've been exploring it since the first day of this retreat in various ways this not self nature of it all, the reality that for many people seems to be the most difficult to touch, to know and to live. And for some though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with a subtle or more overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth is so basic, so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from this reality of no-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid and even static me, I, them, him, her, that, it, within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context text of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and often quite cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that in letting go of our attachment, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is that to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for one moment our so-called self is in constant flux so in truth there's nothing to attach to there's nothing to cling to essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this the Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha he wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion and anguish he wasn't a teacher of philosophy he was a teacher of life a way of life a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at our self and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see our self or more accurately begin to see through our self by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all of the layers of Meaning that we invest things with when we're attached, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but really quite simple. So we're sitting and pleasant. Is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. There are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no True, sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, there's no real suffering. It's because of self grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. The Chinese sage Nan Shen said, by not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that everything anything can we keep looking can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much can we look in the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation without investing a layer of meaning on top of what we see We think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we see, how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self, it's in the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self looking at myself in the mirror if we continue to investigate with willingness and humility it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change the knot, the tangle the tightly grasped belief that there is Self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience? inquire into phenomena without interpretation without analysis or evaluation but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention a non-interpretive non-comparative attention it's only then that the observer, the so-called self and what is being observed, investigated Is no longer separate. No me and it. There's just merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes called. No two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes. Can the power of deeply rooted, egocentric thoughts, habits, and self centered inclinations be loosened and broken up, reduced, let go of, and finally eliminated? It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self not self, no self. And then finally, just for a moment it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. It's no longer all about me. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And some words from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a heavy burden to carry ourself around, our body the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes and fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. The burden or the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership and identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake, but if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. And life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep looking and keep seeing and keep living life, and in fact, living life much more freshly and fully right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher right here on retreat and in our life outside of retreat as we lift a cup and fill it with water as we sit and notice as we receive and simply know the gap between the outbreath and the in-breath and this is a, a poem by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfeld she titles it <clears throat> only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder Dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will nor that other act of shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that Nothing is really ours. That all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other. Even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the intestine or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone, or the skin, or the head hair, or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space, or in the sensation beginning in the heart? and spreading out through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot, (laughs) not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my conscious mind is me. I mean without my mind or without my individual consciousness who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind our conscious mind as these next words are spoken let go of listening with the intellect letting go of interpreting with the intellect and just simply open and receive the words just simply directly hearing Where and what is that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? The very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, no form. It's without color, without shape. We could say it's like space, unborn. Looking into one's own mind. Where is it? What is it? It's like experiencing zero, which might not be a very appealing sounding experience to most people. In the opening line of a book by a mathematician named Robert Kaplan he says when you look at zero you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It, too, arises and passes moment by moment by moment. It, too, is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant and unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels, constructs, and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact. And this is um, the Buddha's uh, short discourse on the non-self-characteristics, characteristic. It's a series of uh, questions that um, we can take to heart as a practice teaching that the Buddha repeated many, many, many times over his uh, 45 years of teaching. On one occasion, the Blessed One is he's called in the suttas and the teachings, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Varanasi in the Deer Park. There the Blessed One addressed the monks of the group of five and said this monks, material form is non self. For if monks for monks (laughs) if material form were self- this material form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine material form saying, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine material form, let my form be thus, let my material form not be thus. Feeling is non-self, perception is non-self. Volitional formations, thoughts and actions, are non-self. And he goes through the same uh, process with each of these. Consciousness is non-self. For if monk's consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, Consciousness leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, they answer. Is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir, they respond. Is feeling impermanent or permanent? Is perception permanent or impermanent? Are volitional formations permanent or impermanent? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? And again, he goes through the whole process with each of these. Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to re- be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir, His monks answered. Therefore, monks, any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past or future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Any feeling whatsoever, any kind of perception whatsoever, any kind of volitional formations whatsoever, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, Whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form disenchanted with feeling disenchanted with perception disenchanted with volitional formations disenchanted with consciousness becoming disenchanted he becomes dispassionate means not attached through dispassion his heart, his mind or her heart, her mind is liberated when it is liberated there comes the knowledge it is liberated and she or he understands destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What has been done has been done. There is no more coming back to any state of being, any state of suffering, meaning. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, those monks delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the monks of the group of five were liberated from the taints of non-clinging by non-clinging. And then there were six arahants, or six uh, enlightened beings, six accomplished ones in the world. The first one was the Buddha, then there were five more. Would it be that easy, huh? the conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment just like every other conditioned phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. And to make this very clear to his students, The Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or the six doors of consciousness. He spoke about eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. So it's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing and interdependent nature of all things? And again, the mirror of the Dhamma from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other changing things and the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I'm of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death and no absolute life. And a wonderfully simple poem by poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing. To assume the water mask. To finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy. Joining at night the full sweet flow. To absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars. To swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations. Beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allowing a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with your eyes closed and visualizing or sensing on some level An enormous jeweled net, a net of infinite of boundless proportions, letting this fill your mind, your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net. While at the same time, its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image, let the felt sense dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life this is the relative side of selflessness the relative side of no self this is the ground of understanding the aspect of the wisdom of no self that compassion springs from as awakening beings we more and more often, act only from the heart of compassion. Because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there's only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you, no separate me. And from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others no amazement or conceit arises just like feeding myself I hope for nothing in return and now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye or the eye of wisdom which is centered in the heart as my uh, teacher Pawak Sayadaw says. Visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast clear empty endless sky or sky-like space. Just relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving. New clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, Let the mind, the heart, rest in the openness of the sky. Let the heart, the mind, rest in the vast openness. Not fixating on any cloud. Just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And let the image fade away now. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself. Not looking for anything at all, just aware of awareness itself, just knowing the knowing. Who knows? Who knows? And now bring the attention back into the body back to the breath back to hearing and just sitting quietly for just a moment as we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility we begin to touch the empty essence of all things the vast open empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into we look in. We keep looking whether we're standing, sitting, moving or lying down. Our practice is to keep seeing through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies. No thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in the world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us really, truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becoming clear and more open more all-encompassing, more spacious. Back and back to the source of itself. Back to the source of all things. And instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of I some solid rendition of me, some fixed eternal entity. We keep getting back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, bright, vital spaciousness of being. In this there's no solid, separate I or other. in this emptiness, this essential emptiness there's an ease the equipoise of a deep ease of well-being even in the midst of the arising changing and passing happenings of life within us and all around us as long as we fixedly mentally reside in the realm of I, me, mine, and other. We're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems. The greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate. Being an isolated, separate entity. And this is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I wanted to uh, share a a story with you, a true story, uh, about a friend of mine who was uh, suffering with this uh, core loneliness. And he decided uh, to seek the help of a therapist uh, for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. With the advice of some friends, he picked a therapist who had uh, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called uh, to make uh, his first appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be very helpful if he brought in some symbol of his problem some symbol of his concern for his first therapy session. So this uh, man arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes, shapes and colors and he set them down in the waiting room and then he went out and he got another load (laughs) and piled these on top of the first load. And he told me that he had to uh, go around collecting baggage from various friends and family members because he didn't have enough of his own baggage. (laughs) So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of his baggage with him and piled it up in front of the therapist. (laughs) And at some point uh, during this first session, the therapist in her wisdom Asked my friend to open up all the baggage, each one. And there wasn't anything inside of any of them. Mm-hmm. You have to have the right client to do that for him. <laughs> As a therapist. When we begin to taste the truth of no-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief like putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand that the load and its nature, to understand what the load and its nature is and just simply set it down. There's a, an old teaching story about this that I really like. It's the story of a woman who had practiced uh, for many years and had had some um, powerful and even quite expansive experiences and a number of uh, illuminating insights. But she still felt that she hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and um, feeling that there wasn't much time left. And she so wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she had heard was able to turn the mind, turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous journey hiking up the mountain an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed her, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped and he turned around towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up to see this person because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime and she explained to this man this old man that was walking down the mountain uh, that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion her anguish and her striving and she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up on top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her The old man stood still and looked at her for just a few moments and then very slowly taking his time he turned around away from her and continued walking down the moment for for down the mountain just for just a few steps and then he stopped again and briefly stood still and then again very slowly turned around towards the woman and then very carefully took the satchel off his back set it down on the ground turned around again and walked down the mountain towards the village. Who do you think she met? Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens, we make use of things in the world as it's appropriate. And we keep exploring, seeing and understanding, living life, and in fact living more freshly and fully, right here and right now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of unfettered pure awareness in relationship to all of the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about via our very direct experiential insight into the emptiness, the empty essence, the not-self nature of things, and the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, this being the relative aspect of the understanding of no-self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. To truly fly free we need both wings. I'd like to close this evening's talk with a, a teaching from the Buddha. Uh, it's from a collection of uh, what's called the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And this is um, the Buddha speaking with one of his disciples by the name of Bahia. Seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the seen in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two.